1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I encourage you to open your Bibles. Verse 14, 1 Thessalonians 5. As I enjoy making lists, I don't know if you enjoy making lists, um, as I make lists, I tend to like to make really long lists because it makes me look important. Because I look, look at all the things that I have to do today. I am vastly important because I have so many things that have to get done. But then the problem with my long list is that I look at it generally and say, wow, look at me having a lot of things to do. I generally don't do a lot of things on the list. And they just left undone. And I feel like a failure. But generally, the shorter my list is, the more likely I am to do it. Like, oh, I only have one thing to do today. Okay, I think I can manage that. And then I get it done. Here at the end of 1 Thessalonians, we find Paul giving, him a, giving the church a long list of different things that they have to do, responsibilities that they have to one another and to God. Now back in chapter 3, verse 10, he was telling them that he was wishing to see them face to face so that he could supply what was lacking. And so there was so much more he wanted to teach them. And over the past few months, we've been hearing about those other things that he wished he could be there face to face to tell them. But instead, he's telling them in the letter. And now as he is closing out his letter, we get this rapid fire teaching of this, 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 and this. So as we come to these verses, there's a couple of them that we are probably very familiar with. Like the rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. But usually we use these as the legacha type of Christianity, right? When somebody gives, gives you something or, and you maybe don't like it or maybe your team doesn't win the game and you're upset about it, your Christian brother uh, who loves you dearly will say, hey, give thanks in all circumstances. Ha, gotcha, got that one. Or you forget to pray before you eat something and then somebody will point to you and say, you didn't pray before you ate that food. And then you look at them and you say, well, I pray without ceasing. Boom. Gotcha. You know, we kind of can sometimes lean towards just using them in those types of ways and maybe not focusing on, on what he's actually trying to help us to understand in regards to rejoicing and praying and the other things we're going to be looking at. But Paul here, he doesn't just give them a list of things for them to do. He has already modeled these things in his own life. And as we're going to see from a variety of uh, passages too, that he has modeled it before them and he is desiring for them to do that. I mean, in the very second verse of 1 Thessalonians in chapter 1, he says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mention you in our prayers. So he's already showing, I, I am constantly praying. This isn't just something that the pastor is supposed to be doing. This isn't just something that he's just saying, just so that you know I'm practicing what I'm preaching, then he gives this list. But he's saying, I am modeling it for you, but it's for you to do. This is for you as the church to be able to do these things. And so we see first the responsibility that we have to others in verses 14 and 15. So let's look together in verse 14. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, Encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone, evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. There are no solo acts in the Christian life. I remember back to my early years in ministry, 
uh, we're on a mission trip, and halfway through the mission trip, I was meeting with each teenager, and I was asking them what God was teaching them this, that week. And so as I got to one individual, I remember saying, so what's God teaching you this week? And they responded with, it's personal. I was like, no, it's, it's okay. You, know, you can share. It's all right to share what God's doing in your life. And then they responded, they says, no, I'm not telling you. That's between me and God a little taken aback by that. I was like, I don't know where to go from here if you're not willing to tell me what you're learning. Because we can see from these verses that there's, there's no response for that. When somebody asks you how God's work, working in your life or somebody wants to invest in your life, the response can't be, I'm not saying anything. It's none of your business. That's not the answer. But you might be on the other side of it thinking, Why should I get involved in someone else's mess? If they want to ruin their life, what's that to me? Let me encourage you to think about what Jesus did. What did Jesus do when he saw the mess that you were in? He came and died on the cross. He rose from the dead so that you can be saved from that sin. But not only that, he put a person in your life to share that gospel with you. Right? It wasn't on your own that you just magically came to the idea that Jesus died on the cross, somebody showed it to you. Somebody looked at your life and said, you're living a life of sin, whether you are little or whether you're older, you're living a life of sin, and that leads towards eternity in hell. Only Jesus can save you. God brought somebody into your life because he knew that you needed someone to point you to Jesus. We must get involved in each other's lives. And we need help with this. Titus 2 reminds us that older men and older women are to be examples and teach those who are younger to be involved in each other's lives. It's not that we're being a busybody, but we are called to be disciples and make disciples. And it's not that we share everything with everyone. That's not the end result, but we do share our lives with other believers. And Paul here is urging them to be involved in each other's life. He's urging them to counsel one another. So we can see that we need help and we need to help each other through counseling. Counseling is not a bad word. If you're in counseling or you're thinking about counseling, I personally would think more highly of you, not less of you. But we tend to think if I'm going in for counseling, that means there's something wrong with me. But really, you're one of the few people who are looking at the world around you. You're looking at seeing that life is hard. And you're saying that sin is tough and you need help with that sin. And you look to someone else and you say, to somebody who loves Jesus, and you say, can you help me? It shows remarkable humility to be willing to do that. And I applaud anyone who says, sin and life is hard and I need some help. But it's not only in the formal counseling. And that's not what he's talking about here. It's not just formal counseling, week-to-week counseling. He's encouraging the entire church to engage in counseling. And he is telling them to learn how to counsel one another. It takes an assessment of the person that you are talking to and rightly figuring out what type of counsel they are in need of. So as we can see here, for the idle or for the unruly, it says that they need admonishing. 
they need a warning. They need to be told to stop their ways, otherwise the destruction in their life is coming. For the faint-hearted, also be translated maybe as little-spirited, they, they need that encouragement. They need somebody to come alongside them and, and help bolster them up. They need more spirit given to them to help them follow the Lord. And then for the weak, it says they need help. They are, they are just in need of someone to help them as they are not just able to do whatever it is that they are desiring to do. It's like, I just need help. Think about it this way. There's three people who have not been coming to church for the last year. One person says, I'm not coming to church because I think it's dumb. I think it's worthless. I think it's pointless to come in. It's a waste of time. I only get two days off for the week, so I am sleeping in on Sunday. It's not worth it. Person number two is struggling spiritually, saying, I know I should be there, but it's just hard to be around other Christians right now because of what I got going on in my life. I just, it's hard. I don't want to put on a fake face. Not that anybody has to when they come to church by any means, but it's just difficult. Then the third person, maybe a new believer, just doesn't know that they should be coming to church. They just weren't aware. Maybe the person who led them to Christ just didn't mention that they should come to church so they can be encouraged and challenged and have the fellowship. How would you counsel each one of those? I sure hope that you're not going to look to the person who doesn't even know they should be coming to church, wasn't aware of that, and say, I can't believe what's, what's wrong with you. Get to church. Come on. That wouldn't be very helpful. Or the person who's maybe faint-hearted and struggling and spiritually is like, you, what's, you need to be corrected. I'm going to come at you, and I'm going to be the full force of Scripture. That probably wouldn't be helpful either. And it probably wouldn't be helpful to the person who thinks that church is just pointless to go along there. It's like, yeah, I really, I see where you're coming from. Yeah, I understand. Let me just help you a little bit. They, they might need a little more stern correction. So each person, it's important for us to assess where they are in their heart. Are they... Are they um, needing of admonish are they idle are they faint-hearted or are they weak but the counsel is still the same of we want to see you coming to church because this is what god has for you is to attend church and be here to be encouraged to be fed by the word so the counsel is the same but how we go about that counseling it might be look different then it says you're patient with them all and that's rooted in love first corinthians 13 says that love is patient in all the counseling that we do with everyone, with every type of person who needs help, the greatest way that you're going to help someone is going to start with you being patient with them, with you showing them love, with you being willing to listen and understand what each person is at. Person one, person two, or person three, it doesn't matter. It, with everyone, it starts with you saying, help me understand where are you coming from? What's going on in your life? And listening to them, being patient, willing to hear where they're coming from so that you might know how to offer good, biblical, godly counsel to them. So be patient with them all. Knowing that we are, have all been there. We have all been faint-hearted. We have all been weak. We have all been idle in our lives. Be patient. Secondly, we need to help each other through peacemaking. Now, the idle, faint-hearted, and weak would be all the more tempted to repay evil for evil. Because in our weakness, we easily slip into wanting to repay evil. Wanting to do wrong to whomever wronged me. 
when you're struggling in life, whether it's through your own sin or just the struggle of living in a sin-cursed world, it always affects others around you, as I'm sure you've seen in your life and experience. It's a pretty general understanding of what sin does. It doesn't just stay with that one person. When we have been wronged on purpose or the evil has been done, not necessarily to us, but it affects us, what happens to us? Usually it's harder for us to see straight. It's harder for us to do the godly thing when that sin and mess affects our lives. So understand that this text right here, it's not telling you that you are not to repay evil for evil. We'll get to that in a bit, but not here. Here, it's telling you to go and help others not repay evil for evil. So he's putting in the charge of the church to, say, to look out for those who might be faint-hearted, idle, or weak, or who might have been wronged by a sin and might be tempted to repay that evil back to them. Saying, it's on you, church, to be the ones who are going to go and step into that person's life and say, don't do it. <laughs> don't repay evil. Give them godly counsel to help them to not give in to that sin. And that person coming into your life Remember, they, it's not that they think they're perfect, not by any means. It's like Matthew 7, 5 says, if you think that you're perfect going to help everyone else and that you don't have any sin, he's like, you're a hypocrite. He said, no, we take the log out of our own eye first. Why? So that we will see clearly to do what? To go and take the speck out of our brother's eye. There's a call from Jesus to still go and remove that speck. So as you're going and intervening in people's lives and going and giving them counsel, helping them to not repay evil for evil, it's not because you think you're perfect. It's because you know you're not, and you don't want other people to give in to sin as well. You're going to go and help them. Thirdly, we help each other through doing good. On the backside of verse 15 says, always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. This is a great charge among us believers that we are to do good to one another. Now, years ago, um, Pastor Van and Sherry challenged Marcy and I with a verse very similar to this. Proverbs 3.27 says, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. When deciding whether somebody asks us, hey, can you help us move? (laughs) Or watch someone's kids, make a meal, etc. When we are being asked to do good to other believers, we used to ask and kind of default to, well, do I feel like doing it today? Do I feel like helping somebody move? For me personally, usually the answer is always no. I don't feel like it because of my back and knee. and I'm old, I get it. But it's... That feeling, do I feel like it? But that's not the question that we should ask. We were challenged by them to maybe instead try asking ourselves first, do you have the ability to be able to do good in this situation? And then ask if the answer is yes, you have that ability to do good, then ask the really hard question that really stretched us is, is there a biblical reason to say no? Do I have a good biblical reason to say no to that? Now, we aren't perfect by any means. It has stretched us in many ways. And we find, too, that it makes life inconvenient. It makes life difficult at times 
to say yes. And we don't say yes all the time, and this, that's not the end result, that you always say yes to everything. But it's definitely helped us to say yes more often and say no less often because we are always to seek to do good. Paul wanted them to take their attention off of what others could do for them and focus their attention for us on doing good to others and specifically members of the church. Now we are to do good to everyone and he mentions that. It's kind of more of a side note to make sure that everybody understands that he's not just saying do good to Christians and that's it as if we could say, okay, if anybody's not a Christian, I don't have to do anything nice for you. But he talked about this again in Galatians chapter 6. He said, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Because if you aren't able to do good to your brothers and sisters in Christ, if you are unable to show love to someone that Jesus loves so much that he died for them and he has purchased them and redeemed them, how do you expect the outside world to take seriously that we have received really this love of Jesus? If we can't do good to one another here, at our church, here within the other body of believers, if we can't be good to them, how are we going to really have any authenticity in being good to those who don't know Jesus? Might be a reason why some people would walk into a church and see like, wow, they don't really love each other here. I can tell. How are they going to love me? Might be a reason why somebody won't go to a church because they've seen Christians not even being kind or doing good to one another. So we start with doing good to one another, yes, and then we branch out and do good to all. Now this is the part where I would want to plug the ministries that we struggle to find help in, like nursery, meal train, children's church, kitchen committee, things like that, but I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to plug those ministries because that's not what it's talking about here. He's saying that this is for individuals of the church to do good to individuals of the church. It's not confined to a ministry, an official ministry of the church. It's not saying that, well, our church does this, so I'm covered. No, he's saying you, believer, you, person, believer in Thessalonia, seek to do good to one another. It doesn't have to be run by the pastors. It doesn't have to be set up as a formal ministry. He's like, no, it's just you do good to one another. Secondly, we have a responsibility to God. What we think of God, what we believe God to be, his character. Let's look at verses 16 and read through 22. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything Hold fast what is good and abstain from every form of evil. First, we see in those first three actions there that we need to trust God's sovereignty. We see these three actions of rejoicing, praying, and giving thanks. Now, these are something that's kind of easy to do sometimes, right? Something good happens to you, easy to rejoice. When life is difficult or hard, a disaster might strike your family, Even non-Christians might turn to prayer and say, God, if you're out there, help me. When someone does something nice for you, it's easy to give thanks to that person. They give you a gift, you say thank you pretty quickly. Not too difficult. But it's when he adds in, 
always, without ceasing, and in all circumstances, it takes a remarkable relationship with God. It first takes trusting that God is sovereign over all the things. You must trust that God is in control of every situation. As Isaiah says in chapter 45, verse 7, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. In youth team, we talked uh, just last Wednesday uh, from John chapter 11 uh, about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And it was interesting in verse 4, Jesus said that Lazarus' illness was for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified. Jesus was saying out of the gate when he first learned about Lazarus' illness from the letter he received, he said, here is the point of it. Uh, Jesus is sovereign over the illness of Lazarus and say, here is the goal for Lazarus' illness. Jesus could have instantly healed him from afar. But he decided to let him get to the point of death and even die. This was his friend whom he loved. And in verse 15 of John 11, he says, For your sake, I am glad I was not there. He wanted those he loved to go through sorrow and the pain of death so that they could ultimately see that he is the resurrection and the life. God is sovereign over all things over illness, over death. And God is in control of all of them and he desires for you to glorify him in everything. So think of the struggle that you might have today. What trial have you recently gone through? God not only knows about it, but he has designed it for you so that you might bring him glory. So rejoice that God is working in your life. Pray always because God is the only one who can do anything and everything about your situation. And give thanks to the one who has given you this specific circumstances. He designed it just for you because he loves you and because he desires for you to glorify him. That's why you can rejoice always. That's why you can pray without ceasing. That's why you can give thanks in all circumstances because God is sovereign over all of it and he is good. Just because something bad is happening to you, it doesn't mean that he's no longer in control. As he says in Philippians 4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Colossians 1, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. And then 1 Corinthians, a church that was, had a lot of struggles and a lot of people in it not doing the greatest. He says, I give thanks to my God always for you. He modeled it over and over, and this is a truth that spans always, without ceasing, and in all circumstances. Why do we do this? Because it's God's will for you. It's God's will for you to do this in Christ Jesus. This is not just a pastor's hope for his people. This is not just, it would be nice if you could do better at this. This is not three ways for you to live your best life now. Doing these things is the will of God. And doing these things will show that you are trusting in the sovereignty of God. 
So let's grow together and trust that God can help us in these areas. So we need to trust God's work. Verses 19 through 21 here. We know that God is in control of everything. Now let's look at how he chooses to work in your life. First, God works through the Holy Spirit to bring about your growth. So that you're able to encourage and help and do good and rejoice and the like. A few verses that talk about what the Holy Spirit's role is in our lives. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of the regeneration and the renewal by, of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is, what gives us, is who gives us a new heart, new desires, so that we're able to do the things, the responsibilities that we have towards one another. Such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The Holy Spirit sanctifies us. So he gives us the ability to grow in these areas and keep growing towards more Christ-likeness. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Through the Holy Spirit, we receive this love of God through the Holy Spirit. These are just a few verses. So it's the work of the Spirit that works in us to live out our responsibilities with each other and with God. And Paul here says not to quench the Spirit. It's an interesting phrase, an interesting word choice, not to quench the Spirit. We have a, probably our most familiar uh, reference is Acts chapter 2 when the, the Holy Spirit comes as a fire. Uh, we have Matthew 3 as well. We find the Spirit being mentioned in relation to a fire coming down. And then Paul uses this metaphor to demonstrate that we have the ability to quench this fire or stifle or resist this work of the Holy Spirit. So if we don't fulfill our responsibilities to God and others, it's going to quench how God is working in us and how God is going to use us. When we try to help Christians complain and not rejoice always, we're quenching the Spirit. When we cease to pray for one another, we quench the Spirit. When we get mad at God because things don't go our way, we quench the Spirit. When we discourage the faint-hearted, turn away from the weak, and are impatient with one another, we quench the Spirit. When we oppose that which is God's will for us, we are quenching the Spirit. We also see examples of this in the next couple of verses. He talks about despising prophecies. That's the second way God works in our lives, is by despising prophecies. Now, Paul here is describing both new and old revelation. Because if you think about it, at this point, God's word has not been fully completed. And as we are now receiving this word from 1 Thessalonians as the word of God, they were just receiving this letter firsthand. So this was new revelation from God that they were receiving. And he challenges them not to despise it. Not to think lowly of it. Not to have that immediate reaction of saying, no way, no how. Because there would be questions of authenticity. When someone declared that they were speaking the very words of God as our sermons do each Sunday morning, as we're teaching the word of God and preaching the word of God, we're saying this is God's word. Some people could despise that, reject it. So nowadays, why would anybody despise God's word? Well, if we're honest, sometimes we do this in our hearts. When we hear God's word preached and someone tells us what the word says and thereby telling us what we should think or how to live, 
sometimes we can take it not as the word of God, but the word of man. And we think that we don't really have to do it. That's, that's just Pastor Matt's opinion. As Pastor Zach preaches, that's just his thoughts on it. That's just what he wants us to do. Sometimes we can walk away from Sunday mornings and maybe just not even give it a second thought. You hit the parking lot and somebody says, hey, what do you think of the message? You're like, I wasn't really paying attention. I don't know. I forget what he said. We can esteem it to the lowest of categories. That's how we can despise the word of God. Instead, instead of despising, he says that you need to test everything. Test the word of God being preached. Checking the authenticity that this is what God's word says. 1 John 4, 1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. We don't test the authenticity of God's word against what you were taught when you were young. I've heard this before. Well, when I was young, I was told this. Is that what God's word says? Don't test it against even what you heard at your last church. Or maybe what you heard on social media, on those Facebook posts that are really catchy and sounding nice, but, or TikTok. And yes, there's an epidemic of bad theology on our social media all over the place that even Christians are taking in and believing because they are not testing the authenticity of what is being said against the word. We test it against the word of God. When you hear a sermon, even from this pulpit, even this one that you are hearing right now, test it against the word, against the standard of truth. And it's not that you come into church with a skeptical attitude, thinking, okay, I don't think you're going to be right, so try to prove, prove it to me. But you come in ready to engage your mind, and you hold fast to what is good. Hold fast, you lean on it, you embrace it, you invite it into your life and live it out. So there's a couple things that you can do that will help you to test the authenticity of the word. First, read for yourself the passage. As it's being read to you, look at the passage yourself. Have your Bibles open and look at the passage. Because then you're able to see the surrounding context around it. And that's what you do next. You check the, okay, is that what he's saying? Is that what... He is mentioning this point of this passage. But then you check it against the rest of Scripture, too. Right? You say, you can't just take one little section, because easily people can take things out of context. And so you look at the passage, and then you say, okay, is that what the Bible says about God? In all the other passages of Scripture, is that, is that what God's Word says about who He is? Because you could look at a verse and see how God shows His wrath on someone, and think, wow, God is just mean. And if the sermon is God's mean and he always does evil things, look, this one little section that talks about God's wrath, you need to say, wait a minute. What about the rest of scripture? You have to bring in the context of it to help yourself. Test everything against the word and then hold fast to that which is good. Embrace it. God works through the Holy Spirit and the power of his word. Trust that. It will help you to fulfill your responsibilities as a Christian. Third, trust God's holiness. Abstain from every form of evil. I love this. At the end of his list of a lot of things to do, he said, okay, if there's anything else, just don't do it. 
state. Okay, if there's some, any form of evil out there, little bit, big, small, whatever, abstain. Get away from it. He used the same word in verse 3 of chapter 4 when he said it talked about abstaining from sexual morality. Get rid of it. Have no part of it. Lay it aside. It's a great way to finish a long list. It's like an ad, just all the things that could be evil. And the reason why we are to do this is because our responsibility to God to trust that God's holy. He's the only one who can call us to this. Because he is a holy and perfect God. If, if he had sins of his own, why would he call us to abstain from any form of evil? You're like, wait, that's kind of hypocritical. If God is involved in sin, then why should I not have to be? But because God is holy, he calls us to holiness. He calls us to abstain from evil. He says, you shall be holy for I am holy. I'm going to ask you a question. I trust that the Holy Spirit and the Word will do a work in your heart. Try not to quench the Spirit when I ask this question. I really want you to search your own heart. What is one area of your life that you are currently giving into evil? One area of your life. Maybe small. Maybe big. Think about your social media, your phone or tablet. Think about Netflix or TV what you're spending your money on, where you're spending your time, who you're hanging out with. Did the Spirit bring up in your heart an area that you instantly thought of? I know when I was uh, working on this message, something came right to mind. It was just like an immediate thing that came to mind. And I found myself immediately trying to quench the Spirit, if I'm honest with you. That this like, man, yeah, I should work on that. And then I immediately started going into, well, it's not that bad. Well, I you know, that might change it. I could maybe, and like my mind instantly just started going to excuses and reasons why it's not that bad or reasons why I can keep a little of it. It's okay. As a spirit might have brought something up in your mind, don't quench the spirit. Get rid of it. Trust that the holiness of God has called you to holiness. It will be better for you, even as hard as it might be to get rid of that. And if that one thing that stuck up in your mind is too hard for you to get rid of, if you're thinking, "Ah, there's no way, I can't possibly, it's too difficult, this is just such a part of my life, let me encourage you to enlist the help of your brother and sister in Christ, that they might come in and offer you counsel, that they might want to love you and help you to keep away from that evil. That's their responsibility to do that for you. As you seek to want to abstain from evil, it's their responsibility and all of our responsibilities to help one another to do that. As I close this morning, I want to encourage you with a couple things. Here at Calvary, we have a lot of people in our church who love Jesus and they love you. And they desire to practice these very verses and point you to Christ. And some of you are saying, I need help. I need more than just a, a coffee shop talk. <laughs> like I have some serious things going on. I want to encourage you to know that we have counselors at our church. We have people who have been trained and certified and know the word well, and they want to help you. If you just need a coffee shop talk, we're available as well. Grab a friend or loved one who loves Jesus 
and say, can you talk with me a little bit? I want you to know also, if you're sitting there thinking, I want to do that for somebody. <laughs> I want to be that help and that counselor and all that. And I just, I don't know where to start. Uh, we have a lot of good free resources for you. A lot of things in our foyer here when it's safe to drive on the roads. A lot of things here that we would love to give you to help you be a good biblical counselor. I encourage you to ha- talk to Pastor Kyle as he's over our counseling ministries. He can point you in those resources and help you. And also line up a counselor for you if you need that counseling. So as we seek to close this out, don't just look past this long list and think, ah, that's too much, like I typically do. If I have a long list, like, ah, that's too much, I'll just put it aside. It's a big list here. Trust in God to do that work in your life, to help you to grow. We're not going to be able to do these things in our own power. We need to pray that we will biblically counsel one another, point each other away from evil as we seek to do good, And that we will trust a sovereign, holy God who is working in us and through us for his glory. Let's pray. Lord, we need help. You have made it very clear in scripture that we cannot do it on our own and we should not do it on our own. It's not all up to us. You have given us a church. You have given us people that can speak truth into our lives and help us. Lord, help us not to be too proud that we are unwilling to receive help. Reveal things in our hearts, evil in our hearts that we need to grow in. Help us to trust you. Help us to pray and rejoice and give thanks in all the areas that you bring into our life. Help us to trust you with all of it. Lord, we know it's difficult. We know it's hard. Thank you for this church. Thank you for giving us this body of believers that we're able to come alongside one another. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.